Hello everybody and welcome back to a fresh new episode of the Mastering Agility podcast. My name is Sander Dur and I'm your host. Before introducing today's guest, I would like to remember you of the awesome Mastering Agility Discord community. The goal is to have 400 people in by the end of the year. We're getting there fast and we're going to do a really cool giveaway again once we reach that 400 by the end of this year. Now, for today's guest, the lovely Aina Alieva is joining us to talk about Agile problems. Problems that will arise when introducing Agile mindsets to organizations, when trying to map Scrum to an existing uh, organization as a new way of working. What kind of challenges arise? What kind of problems are we facing? What's the current state of Agile in her opinion? Let's welcome Aina. Hey, now, welcome to the Mastering Agility podcast. How are you doing? Good. How are you, Sander? I'm good. A little bit cold, a little bit tired. Other than that, doing really well. Thank you very much. Hey, we didn't really decide on a topic what we're going to discuss. So in the short uh, pre-recording, we discussed to talk about agile problems. But there are so many problems. What do you think are the biggest issues at this point when it comes to business agility? So in my current life stage, uh, the biggest problem is the bureaucratic organizations, which uh, make sense uh, for large enterprises who've been in the market for 100 plus years. But in the current situation with COVID and the other black swans, like their previous way of work is quite slow. But unfortunately, they, even if they realize it, it's hard to, to change. It's hard to speed up uh, when you had like so many layers of uh, management and they're trying to become more agile, but still they have so many legacy in like company politics, uh, bureaucracy, etc. So uh, unfortunately, it's quite slow to implement agile in such organizations. And um, there are many organizations this way in Canada where I work for. So this been my problem for the last few years since COVID started and that's why I want this uh, therapy <laughs> to unleash my feelings. It's always a good thing to be open about those uh, those challenges as well. I mean, bureaucracy has this, had has depending on what kind of organizations that you have. Right, initially it was created to create some order in the chaos. Is there no need, no necessity for any type of bureaucracy when it comes to agile organizations? Um, maybe like a few years ago, when I started uh, pursuing Agile, I would say like, no, bureaucracy is evil. We don't need a bureaucracy. We need to get rid of bureaucracy. But maturing personally and maturing as a coach, I see like we need some bureaucracy. Otherwise, it's going to be chaos. People can't be just self-managed without uh, direction and without uh, documented uh, processes and establishing some rules. So the issue is we need to find the balance between the processes of bureaucracy and uh, still have some freedom to uh, adapt and be agile. So what kind of bureaucracy, what kind of structure would you minimally expect in an organization to exist or to be needed? Like, to what extent does it become bad? So I noticed that uh, as the older organization is, as more like management layers, it has. And when we come with agility, like the obvious thing is uh, to get rid of some uh, management layers and add uh, some like workforces 
Like when I work with teams, the main concern is they don't deliver as fast as the leaders want. And when it gets to people, we need to hire more developers, we need to hire more testers, etc. But we don't have resources. However, we have managers and some layers of managers who, like, the main thing is just like get to the scrum master or like whoever is leading the team, get some information from there and report it to the higher level of management, which is not bad initially, but then that level of management also just reports to the next level of management. So we have too many layers of management who just like reports to each other, but when it gets to like cleaning up some layers, what are we going to do with the people? We can't just fire them because they dedicated so many years to all the organizations, they've been loyal, they've been productive, and they wanted like personal and professional growth. So that's why organizations keep creating so many like management layers so people can feel that they are progressing and we can't just get rid of them. So another solution was to repurpose these people, to retrain them to other roles, but retraining someone to other roles is like, I don't know, I'm an agile coach and you're going to retrain me to be a cook. And honestly, I hate cooking. So to stay in the organization, I would probably accept the offer, but I would still be like the maximum of like a mediocre cook if I really want to stay. So that is a problem. Yeah, there's a, there, it's a nice analogy because I know you. We've been uh, we've been friends for a while. Uh, you don't like cooking, also because you don't necessarily like food in general. <laughs> the example that you're trying to get into the organizations, people don't like to cook, but yet they want to eat. So they have to digest the food they have created themselves that they initially don't want to to get. And that's I think especially when you relate that back to the reporting as you mentioned reporting just for the sake of reporting still implies that the decision making has been done somewhere else why not bring these people who have the still apparent decision making authority into the sprint reviews bring them there so you don't necessarily need the whole chain of reporting and by doing so bringing back the lead time in that decision yeah that's a great idea I also tried to implement it, not just me, like the, my other colleagues tried to implement. So we invited some key stakeholders to the sprint review, to the sprint planning. But unfortunately, like high level management is always so busy. So they come to the first 15 meetings to the last half an hour. So they, they believe that spending one and a half hours for sprint review or for sprint planning, it's too much for them. So why not just like talk to the scrum master or product owner later and provide me with a PowerPoint. They so much used to the PowerPoint. So when we try to get rid of PowerPoint and that's the topic for a conversation, people freaked out because what we're going to do, how can we present, how can we lead without PowerPoint? So it took us a about six months. So we're kind of like on a winning side. We are getting rid of PowerPoint. We kind of like replaced it with Miroboard, which is more engaging and facilitating and still has some visual for the meetings and for reporting. But still, it takes years to change people's mindset to come to the meetings and see the value of sprint review rather than keep sending these PowerPoints from one layer of management to another. It sort of makes me think about, uh, this, this might be a very horrible 
comparison, but like drug users. I mean, you can tell drug users to come to rehab, but if you're still going to supply them with drugs in rehab continuously, then yes, they will always revert to their drugs. And it's the same with you know, PowerPoint decks. If you keep supplying people with PowerPoint decks and invite them to the sprint review, yeah, then probably they won't show up because they have their needs met, sort of. If you pull away the entire PowerPoint deck, hey, if you want to know stuff, if you want to know about metrics or you want to know about whatever that we're discussing, come do the sprint review. Other than that, I'm not going to provide you with that PowerPoint deck anymore. Too bad. Yeah. On the one hand, you're right. It's kind of like a horrible comparison. But on the other hand, it totally makes sense because we also notice that People, stakeholders created like meetings uh, without inviting any of the coaches and run the discussions together in secret, <laughs> sharing the PowerPoints, like they're sharing drugs when people are <laughs> rehab. And uh, the other funny thing, they might understand and they might like want the uh, rehab and really like trying to get rid of that, but uh, the higher level, like AVPs, which uh, us uh, don't have access to, they still on this drug of PowerPoint and they demand the PowerPoint from the lower level of management. And like even being like understood why PowerPoint is bad for the specific case. And I'm not um, telling that PowerPoint is bad like in general. No, we're talking about my specific case right now. So they don't have like guts to tell the higher level of management that no, we are moving away from PowerPoint. It's still like command and control. It's still like company politics. People still are scared to lose their job. So even knowing that the other ways are better, they still obey to the higher management. And so it happens that nobody is educating the higher management. And these drugs are still like moving around the organization. <laughs> Apparently, Microsoft is our supplier. <laughs> We've got some support from Anthony in the in the chat. He says he doesn't like PowerPoint either. Miro is always the way to go. So nice support, fellow Canadians. So now what to do? Good question. <laughs> what right. to do now? Just keep trying. Just keep get reading of these drugs and uh, educating from top to bottom. So like many organizations hire us coaches and hoping that we won't change like leaders, just like go to the team. And once I even like had a title agile team coach, which I still don't really understand what it means, but in high level, it means go to the team, change them, don't touch us. That's why we are creating this specific title for you, you're a team coach, you are not organizational coach. But it doesn't work. You go to the team, you, you try to change the team, but the decision-making still goes like top-down. So you can change something in the team, but uh, you can't create agile without changing the top. So it needs to be top-down, and it's kind of like a battle we are trying to win at this moment. It is, and I guess that's where you see the discrepancy or the, the gap starting to either to widen, depending on how you're engaging them, but if people don't get to sprint reviews or any other um, format where you can discuss or uh, engage with the team themselves, then you will always sustain a gap. And that's, that, that's where you get start to, to lose interest from the team or the team needs to figure out themselves what is being meant with value, like how can we meet user satisfaction if our users or stakeholders, in this case management, is not being engaged with the, the 
in the actual conversation, in the place where these these conversations happen. Yeah, they do expect the organization to change, but how can you do that if they're not a part of the discussion? Or as, as Anthony points out, it's all about educating the organization if they don't want to be ed- educated. I mean, it's really hard to get your diploma if you don't go to school. Yeah, and also I want to expand like another point of view until all middle managers start hating me. It's not always bad to have so many layers of management. And there is a very interesting book by uh, Sanil Sander, which calls, uh, uh, sorry, Sanil Mundra, which calls uh, coaching large enterprises, where he uh, telling about the frozen middle, referring to middle management. But uh, it, it's always like good to have someone like in between who is uh, frozen a, a little bit otherwise we just like keep having ideas we keep like implementing them but we need some time to process these ideas so sometimes when the ideas moving slow is good because we can differentiate them and we can filter them and see if uh, they are good or maybe they just uh, a fad and we don't need to implement them like the analogy like with uh, Steve Jobs, like uh, he been also told about different ideas like iPhone and uh, iPad and the others, and it took him a, a few years until these ideas matured and uh, were presented in the way that he understood. So we still need this filter. It's good to have middle management, but sometimes when filter is just like stuck, it, it doesn't work. So what we were like talking about before, it's when the filter is stuck. It's not like to get rid of the filter itself. No, it is, but that's the, uh, I think about why and what's the necessity to change, like what's the whole purpose that we're trying to achieve with this whole organizational ch- change. And then if you know that, then you can start de- uh, defining whether you need sort of these filters or how do you want to move forward. What do you think is the biggest challenge or the, the biggest underlying reason that it becomes this hard to change or to, to uh, still have the necessity for PowerPoints, for instance, or for any of these legacy behaviors? The main reasons are that people are protecting their comfort zone. They're used to this. It works for them. Why would we change something which works? And the example I used to provide in my webinars as well. So being an agile coach is kind of like you have to adapt to change. Also, I traveled like a lot. I lived in different countries, different places. So it shows like my level of adaptability and agility. But when I buy a new phone or a new laptop, even though I want this change because I bought this phone, for example, and it's cute, it's red color, it's new, I like it. But it took me a week to change from my old iPhone to the new one, which I liked and I wanted, just because I was rejected to change. It was challenging for me, it was painful to start using a new one, to transfer new information, but it's simple, it's just the phone which I wanted. And for people who've been living in the same city, working in the same organization for 20 plus years, pursuing their career, like moving, for example, from the developer to AVP, using PowerPoints since they were 20 and now they are in their 50s. And now someone came 20 years younger than them and told, PowerPoint is drug, let's get rid of them. Imagine the reaction and uh, it takes time. Yeah, on the other hand, 
I mean, if you look at the insulation in your house, uh, back in the day, you had only one layer of glass, and that's what people stuck with for years and years and years. Now we have HR++, but you don't stick to that either, just because we've always had single-layer glass. So why change now? Because it always has been sufficient. There are better ways to do it now, so why not adopt those those changes? And there's a question in the chat saying, I've experienced educating the team and showing so much value where leaders start to notice and ask question on questions on how it's done. What's been your experience? Uh, what do you mean, What's how it's done? The Agile implementation? Yeah, like what's, uh, what we're do- currently doing in our assignment at, uh, at a large media corporation is to create some sort of FOMO. And then people start coming in, like, how did you do it? How is it done? How did you get to this point? Like, What's your experience when it comes to training teams and, and educating teams and showing where value is and where leaders start to notice till that point? Like, How is this done? Yeah, I think first it's a great question. If people are curious, they are already kind of like adopting their mindset to implement it. They just want to make sure that they just want to feel safe on this journey and want someone experience, want like the shepherd who's going to lead them through this journey because this journey looks scary, but they're kind of like ready inside to explore. The worst thing when they don't ask these questions, they just like reject whatever you start proposing them and just cut you down in the middle of your sentence. So in this case, they need support they are scared psychologically, so the first thing you need to provide them this safety. And one of the agile pillars is transparency. So we definitely need to have a plan as coaches, a mobilization plan on how we're gonna use it. Otherwise, like a shepherd without a plan, as we remember the Alice from Wonderland, if we don't know where to go, we will go somewhere. But we need to talk to them and identify where they want to come. So when we have the start point and end point, we provide kind of like a route and giving them a map, being totally transparent and telling them how we're going to do it. And when we get their buy-in, we can start slowly leading them. I can't say like when we provided the transparency, they find, yeah, we are ready to explore. They kind of like ready to explore, but they're still scared. So on the way, we need to support them with some like waterfall legacy, like still using the reports or some metrics or like whatsoever and slowly like move into agile metrics. But we need to understand that people feel scared initially and we just need to provide them psychological safety. So same for teams and same for leaders. What such a, and hopefully this this satisfies uh, the question in the chat, uh, would such a, an implementation or such an approach work if people would not be a, a little anxious, a little antsy about this? Oh, first, we need to have series of, I, I don't like webinars. I prefer using a workshop with leaders and with teams like separately and together providing them information what is going to be done. So, for example, if we are implementing Agile, we need to use the, we need to choose a framework, whether it's Safe, Spotify, Scrum, Kanban, whatever. So we need to give them some observation on the framework we're going to use and make them choose. We are not consultants. We are coaches. We don't tell them, hey, guys, we're going to use Scrum. No, we provide them like Scrum, Kanban, Safe, for example, 
and it's just like an example and make them decide what is gonna be like working for their organization because they've been there for like 20 years and we just came and been there for a few weeks figuring out the best approach so we have a workshop on creating the best approach and what framework we are going to use then we need to decide on the hierarchy again even though we don't like it but we need some so do we want like teams platforms and i'm using like safe uh, language right now or do we want just like teams reporting to some director level or ivp so whatever structure we have we need to identify team structure who we need in the team like developers testers uh, ux designers do we need ux designer in the team do we need an architect etc like clear roles and responsibilities because teams are new to agile they might not even like know what is the difference between a scrum master and a product owner so have a clear setup for the team have a clear hierarchy clear framework and then we can maybe not then in parallel we can go to processes and IT tools which I am not familiar with I came from business side and I was electrical engineer never a developer that's why probably I left it until the end because I'm still scared <laughs> a little bit when it gets to a technical conversation but uh, definitely we need to do it in parallel to identify technical tools and processes uh, like for QA uh, what um, what are we using? What kind of like uh, tests environment? What kind of dev environment? Our architectural like environment uh, like uh, Kafka, SonaCube, uh, QTests. Uh, these are like top three. I we keep using from one organization to another. That's why I know these titles. And don't ask me what it means. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have to know. I'm just coach. My role is to lead with powerful questions. So we have tech leads. We have architects who know exactly what I'm talking about. So we just need to bring these people in the room and facilitate another workshop where they can identify our architecture and tech tools. Yeah, speaking of the architecture, and it leads back to your hierarchy, it's, it's uh, the initial starting point of this conversation talking about uh, agile problems. And I think it's very interesting that you have an architect for you know, any new product that you're developing. But as soon as it goes, when it comes to these implementations of uh, an organizational way of working like Agile is very different compared to the old traditional waterfall approach. But apparently we never think about maybe we should have an organizational architect to restructure whatever need to restructure in order to make this new way of working actually working for us. What's your experience on that? Um, we never had like an organizational architecture to restructure as a whole structure itself because in my experience the mobilization and reorganization starts with one business unit kind of like a pilot project so the organization wants to play safe again let's start somewhere there see how it goes and then if you guys have a success we might consider restructuring the other business units the other part of the organization so if we get a success in the first one we kind of like go into the second and the third one but we never started with like organization as a whole which would be the best approach for me like as a coach but it might be very risky for the organization if it fails the organization will lose like millions of dollars so that's why they try to play safe and again we are talking about old bureaucratic organizations which uh, like still a command and control and don't lose their power so yeah we kind of like go using like not the best approach but probably the safest approach 
Yep, makes sense. Sort of in a way, because the safest approach usually is the, the least efficient one. Uh, maybe interesting question to the people in the chat as well. Like, what do you experience to be uh, agile problems at this point? And when I think about agile problems, uh, prediction comes to mind, predictability, estimation. Uh, psychological safety at this point, of course, is one of the biggest hot topics, but we've been covering that in the podcast for quite a bit the last, last few few episodes. But I think one of the biggest things, and maybe you can you can back me up in your experience, is that people or organizations are looking for a one-size-fits-all, like the silver bullet. Yeah. We don't have to change that much, and uh, we have the biggest impact. What do you think about this? Oh, this is another <laughs> pain <laughs> I'm suffering with, and, but the topic is agile problems, so yeah, that's another problem. The organization wants uh, like silver bullet and uh, kind of like the approach I used uh, for the previous one, and uh, they always ask me about the successful cases, and yeah, I have successful cases, but one approach doesn't fit all which people are, again, like, they understand they're smart people in the organization. Like, leaders are, like, really smart there. Otherwise, they wouldn't climb the corporate ladder. But, again, protective, the, the, protecting their safety and uh, security, they kind of, like, hoping subconsciously for this approach. So this is the other thing. We need to educate them, even during the job interview. Unless we are so desperate on getting a job, so we agree on everything, they ask us during the job interview, but it's showing off during the interview if they are looking for a silver bullet or if they are really ready to change. And unfortunately, like 95% interviews I had is the organizations don't know why they need Agile. They heard the fancy tech buzzword Agile. They know that everybody is going Agile. Oh my God, we are not Agile yet. We need an Agile coach. We watched uh, two, three videos on YouTube. We watched Spotify. We were excited about Spotify. We add to the job description experience with a Spotify model, even though there is like not such a model at all and Spotify <laughs> doesn't use this model anymore, but they don't know about that. So when you come to the job interview and you start talking to them, you see it like after first two, three questions, even you see it like from the job description, but you still have hope that you can educate these people. So if you see that people are like listening to you and buy in your ideas during the job interview, so I take it and I start like coaching them from the interview and since my first day in the organization that there is no one silver bullet and one size that doesn't fit all. If people are like too conservative, just give us agile or just like give us processes or agile is equal scrum, we need scrum ceremonies. You see it, so I just reject these offers. <laughs> because honestly, yeah, I, I don't know wonderful. what to do with these organizations. <laughs> Maybe someone knows, please write us in comment and educate me. <laughs> uh, ceremonies is one of these things as well. We're the difference between ceremonies and, as they call it, scrum events, is that ceremonies are events except with a religious connotation. And some people are very religious when it comes to Agile, like Agile is going to be our holy savior and it should yeah. save everything that we're doing. Of course, it doesn't work that way. If if it would have, then I would be out of a job. So thank God it doesn't. Um, but, you know, exactly what you say, uh, the 
Spotify model does not exist. And we had Henrik Newberg on the show a couple of episodes ago where he was describing this. Like, there is no Spotify model. I just was talking about the Spotify engineering culture. And that's what has been now known as the Spotify model. Actually, people left the company because of this, which is uh, horrible, of course, a horrible impact. So that's where you have negative value. Different, different topic that you can actually have negative value. But my point being... Many organizations are looking for that one-size-fits-all approach because they fail to skip what Alistair Cogburn introduced to you to Agile, being Chu Hari. Have you ever seen uh, the Karate Kid movie? Yeah. Good. If I've people seen who are listening who haven't, go and watch it. <laughs> yeah, still, the, the principle applies, you know, the, the wax on, wax off stuff. Point being, Daniel LaRusso, the Karate Kid in the, in the, in the film itself, is being told by his trainer, by his sensei, Mr. Miyagi, to put the wax on uh, on the cars that he had, uh, the old classic American cars, and to take it off again, like go through the motion. He did. He doesn't want to do it. Why? Because it has nothing to do with karate. But what it has to do with, even though he didn't see it, is to get that muscle memory and to create a sort of a system, a pattern, and then to um, endure the pain that comes along ultimately to know how this stuff works and how you can apply it. And then if you're actually going to apply it in practice, then you can learn from this and see where you can adapt to fit this to your your cultural needs, your organizational challenges. And that's what Spotify had done, has done, is they took the empirical approach. They implemented Scrum as it's supposed to be done by the book and then started to see where the friction was to their specific unique needs. The thing with unique is, is that you can't, brought that across multiple organizations. So any organization who wants to, who says they need to implement the Spotify model is not looking at the empirical approach, but just we want to have our problems solved right away with, and we don't want to do really want to do anything for it. Think about what should we change that relates back to the uh, 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 organizational architect. What do we need to change? Wax on, wax off, exactly, Anthony. What do we need to change in order to um, make this work for us and how can we create our you know uh, not the spotify model but maybe the uh, i don't know the shell uh, model the ibm model what works for us what our local challenges are and i think that's something that many organizations don't want to do or underestimate what the value is to it i mean if you you're highly intelligent you're well educated you're in the engineer you you were educated in, in uh, electric uh, is it uh, how do you call that? Electrical, Electrical engineering. Yeah. I wouldn't be able to do that. And why not? Because you went through that pain of doing the wax on, wax off. You took the empirical approach and, and took the studies and, and found out what happens if, I don't know, you do try to run X. You took the empirical approach. I didn't, but I don't expect myself to get to your level of knowledge. Yet that is the exact thing that organizations are trying to do. Don't go through the pain. Don't go through an emotion. Yet expect maximum outcomes. And I think that's um, something that we as as agile coaches or consultants are requested to fix with minimal minimal pain. Yeah, minimum pain, minimum efforts, and uh, minimum money spent on that. And I've yep. been talking to like many leaders, not just large enterprises, but uh, other like organizations uh, not related to IT or agile. So those leaders or entrepreneurs, um, 
asked me about Agile. So when I tried to explain about the mindset, about the value we are bringing to the customers, customer satisfaction, they don't care about any of that. They just care like, what is ROI at the end of the year? How fast is going to be implemented? And when I tell like it takes just like three, four months to get buy-in from the team to get their trust. And only after that, you can start coaching. And then it takes another like six months to get to this like coaching point to move the team like from the stage of like norming to performance. So overall, it's kind of like 12 months or even like more depends on the situation. It's very rare cases when it takes like less time. Mostly it's for the small startups when people are more like agile and young, I mean, like on their mindset, not on the age. And those leaders, those entrepreneurs, don't want to hear that. And I notice that not many leaders are like considering the strategy of playing a long game. Everybody wants a short game, the short win, and we don't care <laughs> or don't want to think about what's going to happen next. But Agile is basically the long-term game which will pay off, but definitely not the first year. No, and that is... Uh quite frequently an expectation like implement scrum in three months and then we're good to go then all of our issues will disappear like sun in the snow unfortunately that's not how it works uh, sort of glad but also sort of sad then to hear that this is your experience too uh, glad that i'm not the only one and i know i'm not the only one but it's always good to to be able to be on the same level and have the uh, the understanding mutual understanding what other issues does this create uh, what, what do you mean by other issues? You know, if if an organization doesn't dare to take the empirical approach, do you see this in other areas outside mm -hmm. of the implement uh, implementation itself? Do you that? What's the effect that's rubbing off when it comes to you know dynamics, culture, whatsoever? Yeah, the effect is they might pretend that they mature, they have uh, this uh, PowerPoint reports, uh, they have probably, everybody knows the analogy with the watermelon, like a green report, a green project on the surface. And I actually read uh, from Insight, which nobody wants like to notice. So they might have this like green project for like a few months, but then green is turning red and it becomes obvious. So they spend another month like pretending that, no, we're still green. We are just like turning yellow, amber for some reason, like keep pretending in front of the like higher leadership, like AVP or uh, other levels. But eventually it doesn't work. And who blame to for this? Definitely coaches, definitely scrum masters or contractors, whoever came and brought the changes. So kind of like you didn't implement the changes we wanted. So it definitely hurts team dynamics. Uh, it hurts um, like organizational processes because they started changing. They started transforming. They moved to, I don't know, like depends on how far they move to the third stair, to the fifth stair, to like eighth stair, like compared to like 20 stairs process overall. So they're on the eight stairs now and they kind of like stuck, some organizations stuck and still like pretend that they are moving to agile. And then I joined this and they are telling me, we've been trying to implement agile for the last 10 years. And okay, you guys actually have been trying for two years and then you stuck here and for the last eight years, you just like stuck at this level and you don't move it. So the organization keeps spending money, the ROI, everybody is concerned, but they keep wasting money 
for the transformation which doesn't move forward or they just like shut down the transformation and go backwards to a waterfall but the teams already tasted freedom they tasted agile and some of them wants to continue in my experience like mostly like testers they kind of like first adopters because it's easier for them to work iteratively than just test everything at once then the others so the team uh, wants agile but the leaders don't and then it's gonna be like pressure and uh, kind of like internal war between the team and leadership so it hurts like organization financially it hurts organization uh, psychologically but unfortunately sometimes there is a pain the organization needs to feel to understand what to do next unfortunately yeah but they don't really, yeah, it's, of course, pain is uncomfortable and people in general are relatively reluctant to change. Like, how do you help people to understand why the, uh, why the change would benefit them? Is that the empiric approach? Do you tailor this on the person at hand or is it, do you have a model for this? I don't have a model for this and I, I can't say that I am too experienced in this and uh, can just convince someone after like two or three meetings, but like we need to keep telling people and explaining people what is going to happen. Like each action has their result. So if we do this, this is going to be the result, unfortunately, and I fall into this trap all the time because I'm an agile enthusiast. I know what is going to like get at the end. So I kind of like putting a cart in front of the horse and telling, so this is going to be the result without uh, providing them like clear actions uh, to make sure that they feel psychologically safety. Or if uh, I just like provide the next steps without identifying the results that they get, or maybe the results for the team, which uh, like the leaders don't care that they they're supposed to care, but people are selfish. So yeah, it's very like challenging to identify and to provide like what people really need. But when we kind of like click, okay, this person cares about safety, for example, or like money or like organizational spirit. When we click there, we keep like educating them on what's happening. And again, it's a painful process. You educate them, you create a meeting and like, even if the leader understood, okay, we are going agile, we are doing empirical process, people's first, it's hard to break the habit. And then we get to the meeting and this leader starts like dictating again to the team and to their like employees what they need to do next. And it's kind of like against what we've been talking about, what we've been like spending last two hours of education. And then at the end, the leaders ask for feedback. So did I improve? And you as a coach, like, no, you didn't. And it depends on the maturity of the leader to take this feedback and to understand this feedback and also maturity of the coach, how to provide this feedback so the leader understands. So I don't have a model yet. I am on my way of practicing and maturing myself as a coach in this, but hopefully in one year we will have a podcast again. So I will have a clear model and provide like there are five steps you can make leader mature and adapt but not at this moment i'm gonna stick you to this so november 2023 we're gonna have another podcast to reflect on this i uh, i recently <laughs> was a guest for once in the podcast of the scrum.org podcast with uh with dave west will probably be released somewhere in december 
I had a really nice conversation about him, about leadership. He was very open about his personal challenges and uh, what he feels is uh, are his things to improve. And I think that he, he displayed a very um, essential thing there is to be aware of your own pitfalls and have a good level of introspection. What's the best agile leader that you have come across so far? The best agile leader? You want a name or... <laughs> <laughs> oh, just a situation. If you want to know a name, if you want to mention the name, sure, go ahead. Um, nice to have some kudos to someone, but if you want to stick to the character or the behavior, completely fine. I would stick to the character because I met a few real like agile leaders. I am looking for become like them one day. I am not at the stage yet. So these leaders, they have a very strong other business or technical background and also have an empathy and uh, compassion, but stick to their coaching, not stick to people's problem, like not colluding to people. And that is my problem because I am empathetic, but I, I found myself being like too much in the like team problem and feeling too much other people's pain. So I forget about my coaching plan and kind of like becoming like a protective mom, which is not a coach anymore. <laughs> it's just like a protective mom. And even as a parent, sometimes when you're overprotective, it doesn't serve your child. So these people, they have like very solid business understanding. They speak business language with leaders. They speak empathetic language with the team, but they always have their focus in mind, so it's kind of like a combination of the accommodative type of personality and analytical type of personality and sometimes assertive type of personality. So you feel the pain, you compassion to the team, you you support the leader, but you analyze everything like at the same time and you assertively push them to the end goal. So situational leadership, being very aware of how to influence or how to um, behave in certain situations and not always be like the, the elephant in the Chinese cabinet. Yeah, exactly. And know, know your end goal, know how to get there and adjust and adapt and be agile on the way, feeling empathy and compassion to the team and understanding to the leadership. That's pretty cool. I think that's very important. I think that relates to you, what I see from you on you know, social media platforms like LinkedIn, and I don't want to call you an influencer because that makes me think of Instagram hippies. Um, <laughs> but you're you're definitely a, a good online personality and you know how to brand yourself really well. But that requires that situational leadership as well. How do you get to this point that you know how to build a brand for yourself and know things, what to say and how to behave in, in certain situations? Yeah, absolutely. And before we go to that uh, question, I will actually give you one name. Ian Banner is uh, one of the coaches. I attended a few courses and I, I still like look for his posts on LinkedIn and I am learning a lot from him. So if you want a good example, Ian Banner is the one who follow and definitely Sander, his podcasts, his Discord. <laughs> Thank well, you. whatever like social media you have uh, yes that's how we met actually at one of the networking events and coming to your question about um, 
the uh, branding on the social media, knowing like what to say and um, how to say. It took me a while to uh, figure out, and I was uh, scared of uh, posting something on LinkedIn, especially when I just like started my career when I pivoted from engineering and um, teaching languages to IT and specifically Scrum Master or Agile, I was terrified posting something on LinkedIn or like as a blog because I knew there are like so many experts with like 30 plus years or 20 plus years expertise, like who learned from Jeff Sutherland or like Alistair Cockburn or like... uh, other fathers and here is like me aina brand new scrum master who posts her like clever <laughs> opinion on all social media i was terrified but i got um coaching from uh, pmi chapters and agile chapters and people my coaches were very encouraging about that like don't be scared just like post most people don't know even like what you know agile is such a niche so Nobody knows outside of our like cohort what agile is. Neither like people in like marketing, e-commerce, or whatever like other fields. So like whatever you know already, it's something new for them. So start simple. So I started simple. I started writing what agile is and kind of explaining in a simple way, not in a Wikipedia way where it starts agile is a methodology and like full of frames such as Scrum, Kanban. So. Like one sentence, 15 unknown words for people who are far from our niche and kind of like make them sleepy after the first paragraph. So I I tried to do it engaging and in a funny way so everybody can relate and understand. And that's how I actually got an idea to start illustrating and provide it in the most like funnier and childish way. Because it takes me so time to learn something new because again, there are like so many industry specific terms. I don't know. And the new information is just like hard to absorb when it's new. So I tried to make it like for a five-year-old child, like using foxes, bats, mice in my illustrations. Like sometimes I'm criticized from business experts. Like did someone just hug this page and started providing (laughs) childish cartoons? But that's the way how we learn, at least like from my opinion. So I started there. When you start branding in social media, definitely someone is going to hate you. But it's kind of like the ratio of how many people like follow you and write you positive feedback and encourage you to illustrate or to create more posts because they learn from you and how many people hate you. And again, you discover why this person hates you, what specifically they don't like. Is your like content doesn't make sense or they just don't like your approach? I also don't like the approach of like some like influencers in Instagram or like LinkedIn or like whatever. It's just like my personal preference. But I never write a comment. Some people write a comment. Okay, they don't like my approach. Don't follow me. The other people like my information. Okay, this encouraged me to keep doing and also free webinars, podcasts and other like tools where I can interact with the audience and get questions. And that was another fear. Oh my God, I'm going live on LinkedIn. Some experts will ask me a question. Like, have you heard about like this type of model or like that person? And oh my God, I never heard about it. I, I look stupid. People won't trust me. Like, no, I found out that authenticity is also a key to success in social media. Yeah. I don't know something. I say, yeah, I don't know. Please 
educate me. That's actually how I learn, and this is like the fastest way of learning, being live, having a webinar, write a post on social media, people ask you a question you don't know, you openly say you don't know, and the person explains it to you. And eventually you build your crowd. I don't like to say followers because, again, it's like Instagram hippies have followers. I don't have followers. I like having network and I like having people in the network who are smarter than me so I can learn from them, not just people can learn from me. So it's kind of like a circulation of knowledge between like more experienced people to people who just like started learning. And when these people who are just like started learning a few years ago, they come back to me and showing their progress, and now I learn from those people. So it's like endless endless circle of knowledge, and that's how you brand yourself on social media. Yeah, I really appreciate the the openness that you're mentioning and the, and the courage that you display, because I know it can be challenging to discuss these kind of things, you know, where you, you, you have to say, or you don't have to say, but where you specifically mention your challenges, the way that you felt, the anxiety levels... Sometimes it seems to be a little too much that we always have to perform and that we know everything. And the thing is, we don't. And as soon as you are comfortable with knowing that you don't know everything, and maybe even anything, I mean, the soon, the minute I came out of my studies, after I graduated, the first thing that I learned is that I don't know anything. It took me four years. To, no, that's not true. It took me a, a few years to go through my bachelor's. Uh, but then what? And you still don't know anything. And the, as soon as you embrace the fact that you'll never get to a point where you know everything the better it is so i really appreciate your openness and your honesty in, in admitting those things and it's the same with the name that you just mentioned i wrote it down and you probably saw that uh, ian banner i'm gonna look him up i don't know him where i've been in situations as well where people mentioned the name and they, they said Is that like you don't know him no i don't know the entire world Oh, let's connect. Let me uh, help me understand why this would be a good idea to connect with these people. But what is the information or the knowledge that they can bring, or how can I support them? It's uh, knowing that you don't know it and everything and anything is really really helpful. And a quote that came to mind while you were uh, telling your story, sharing your your experience is: if it frightens you, if it makes you anxious, it might be a good thing to try. And uh, I've I've been talking to many people that were like, I don't know where to start. What if the comments are going to be negative? Well, there will always be people who will doubt you or who have negative feedback or just are complaining. And you know, you can feed that information, or you can feed on that, or you can feed on the positives and see where you can improve. And again, take the empirical route. How can we expect and adapt? And and what can we do with this information? It seems like you've been doing a a uh, very good job on that. You, you're you part of Forbes. You you do the webinars continuously. You have really good posts, really good quality posts. You speak on conferences. You've done really well for yourself. And that brings me to the last question of this episode. Where can people find you? Where can people see what kind of conference that you're speaking at? Or where can people find your webinars? Where? 
Okay, before I answer that, I remember the Dunning-Kruger effects, and if you feel that if you know everything, you are on the top of mountain of stupidity, and then you feel that you don't know anything when you fall, and only after that there is like a slope of improvement, which is uh, very long. When you feel that you know everything, it's you are on the top of the mount of stupidity, and then you fall from that and there is where the actual like slope of improvement and slope of learning is happening and people are like on the different stage of the slope but it doesn't matter the matter is that you are on the slope and you are improving and another example i had in my head is like it was a platon or a socrates i don't remember who specifically when he spoke with his uh, student the student told oh you're such a great philosopher, you know everything. And he wrote two circles. One circle was small and another circle was big. And he told, so this is your like small circle of knowledge. Your knowledge is what is inside there. And in the line is, it's where you touch with unknown. So you don't, you don't know much. So there is not much like unknown for you, but my circle is bigger. So this is my knowledge inside. And like what is outside is the unknown which touches what I already know. So it's kind of like endless way as more we know, <laughs> the more unknown we face. And now coming to your questions under where people can find me. So LinkedIn, my most active social media, Aina Alive, is there. Like also Instagram, despite the fact we despise Instagram hippies, some people are there. So I post my pictures mostly on Instagram. And I'm launching my brand new website on Monday. So it's beagilenow.com, where you can find the schedule with my webinars and future bootcamps and training. And just follow me on LinkedIn, where I update my podcast recording, my future presentations, or whatever next I'm planning to do. Wonderful. And of course, you're in the Mastering Agility Discord community. And there can people of course. directly chat with you. Yeah, I'm a Wolverine there, so don't be confused. Wolverine <laughs> is a girl. <laughs> Wolverine is your name on the Mastering Agility Discord. Aina, thank you very much for being here. Really appreciate the discussion. Hopefully, we'll see you back in November next year. Yeah, hopefully, I will bring you a model. Thank you, Sander. You're very welcome. Talk to you soon. Talk to you soon. And that is all for today's episode of the Mastering Agility Podcast. Thank you for staying with us. Thank you for listening to this episode. Personally, I'm, I've always been a big fan of Aina's work. I think she's very inspiring. The way she's feeling her presence on social media as well. How she presents herself. How she speaks at conferences. I think she's doing a wonderful job. And I hope you guys agree with me. But I also hope to see you in the Mastering Agility Discord community. You can find the link in the show notes. It's a very thriving community. I'm very proud of the way we've built that throughout this year. And it's just the first year. So I'm looking forward to seeing what's going to happen in, in next year. Speaking of looking forward, I'm looking forward to next week's episode as well. Hope that you that you guys join us there too. Have an amazing day. Until then.